Well, good morning again. Good morning to you. Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of Titus. So if you have your Bibles, as I hope you do, go ahead and turn to the book of Titus. We'll be finishing chapter 1 today, verses 10 through 16. And so uh, as we begin, I want to start uh, Trevin Wax. Uh, wrote a book. He works for the Southern Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist denomination, and he wrote a book titled Counterfeit Gospels. And in his book, uh, he begins by showing how, for the most part, as Americans, uh, we are aware uh, of many great threats um, to us. We're aware of weapons of mass destruction, like nuclear, nuclear war, of chemical warfare. We're aware of increased terrorist attacks, um, we're, we're aware of, of many of these large-scale types uh, of, of um, threats that we face. But then he goes on to say that there are many weapons of mass destruction that we may not be aware of. And he said, historically, one of the greatest weapons of mass destruction is nothing more than a piece of paper. And he said, it's the counterfeit bill. And he said, he goes on in, in the chapter, in the intro, he, he goes on to say that during the Civil War, the Northerners sought to undermine the Southern morale uh, and the basis of its slave-based economy by forging Confederate currency and by creating mass confusion regarding the value of the Confederate, mo- the Confederate money. The North helped speed the demise of the Confederacy. And so counterfeits always distort truth, and therefore they always um, bring about great confusion. And they have been a massive, uh, they've been a weapon that has been used throughout, uh, throughout the ages, and the church is no different. Throughout the ages, false teachers have plagued the church with counterfeit gospels, with false gospels. Often, I think we as a church, we will say, well, the greatest threat is, is blatant heresy, the rise of Islam, some extremist group. We're often pointing out there when we think of danger, but the Bible is very clear that the greatest danger of the church will come from within. When Paul, he's writing to the Ephesian, or when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, and we witness this conversation in Acts chapter 20, this is what he says. Remember, he's preparing them. He'll never see them again. So this is, these are his words. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Did you notice where these wolves came from? They came from within the church. And among you, among your own selves will arise men. And so when we look at the church today, this is what we see. We see that there are abundance amount of false gospels um, are being preached outside, but also within the church. And so I want to give a few examples. I'm going to give a few examples based upon, uh, based upon these books, uh, that, that, this book that is given. And I have two of them, so if you want one of these books, afterwards come see me. First two people, get them. It's kind of what I do. So if you'd like um, to better understand not only false gospels, but the true gospel, I would love to give you that resource to be able to do that. Um, But here's a couple false gospels. Some of these you may be somewhat aware of. All of them have extreme areas um, that definitely go into where we'd actually have a a full-blown cult. But um, number one, the therapeutic gospel. This counterfeit gospel confuses our symptoms with diseases, with the disease. What I mean is it says we are sinners guilty before a holy... It, It does not say that we're sinners before Um, guilty before a holy God, but rather it says your guilt is your sin. 
Your low self-esteem is your sin. Unhappiness is your sin. What you need is a gospel that makes you feel better. What you need is therapy. You're not a sinner under the wrath of God. You're simply a troubled soul who needs help. And that's why Jesus came. He came to make you happy. He came to increase your self-esteem. He came to put your life together. And so when people like this who are buying into a therapeutic gospel, they view church and they say, well, I will gather with the church as a car does to a gas station. I come to get filled up with good thoughts so I can make it another week. This view says you deserve good things. You deserve a better life. You deserve what you want. This is an extremely popular message that Christians have bought into and also just much of America. The extreme view of this is the prosperity gospel, which almost every TV preacher is a prosperity gospel preacher. Almost. Not all of them. So be very aware of what you watch on TV. But this is what Victoria Olstein, the wife of Joel Olstein, said the other day. Sorry. It's kind of one of those mornings. Um, This is what she said. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy, she said. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's ridiculous. Does anybody really believe into that? Yeah. About 40,000 people physically gather at Joel Olstein's church every single week, and millions more tune in every week around the world. So yeah, it's very attractive to the world, to unbelievers, but also many believers are attracted to a form of the prosperity gospel. They are the And so the therapeutic gospel, it minimizes what God's word says about our sin and distorts the purpose of Christ coming to earth and dying. So that's one that's out there. And most likely you've seen a form of that. You've heard a form of that. Our prayers will often indicate how we view the prosperity gospel. If we're always praying for things, for better things, and it's not bad to pray for stuff, but is that the focus of our prayers? Number two, the judgmentless gospel. That's right, the judgmentless gospel. It's a one that attacks the character of God and what the Bible says regarding eternal life. It says God is loving, therefore he can't be angry. Why would we have an angry God? He certainly will never judge anyone. And so what this view does, it promotes universalism. And I know many of you, if not all of you, have been um, exposed to some form of this. Universalism says everyone goes to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. And in a recent survey by U.S. World News Report, 80% of those surveyed say, yeah, they'd go to heaven. 80% of Americans say that, at least of those who were surveyed. Um, There's no eternal judgment. Therefore, there's nothing we need to be saved from. Therefore, there's nothing we need to be forgiven of. So this view says the cross of Jesus was completely unnecessary. Um, A popular speaker is Rob Bell, who now travels with Oprah. And so that, that's one to throw a name to maybe place a little bit more, um, a picture of that. Uh, number three, the moralistic gospel. And this is where we're going to spend more time today because this is what's happening in Crete. Um, but it says that if you want to be a good person, acceptable by God, then you must do good things. The counter, this counterfeit calls us to put our confidence in us, in what we do, rather than in what Jesus has done. This view is super prevalent, especially in Christian bookstores. Ten steps to a better marriage, seven steps to a better you, six steps to financial peace. All these steps. If you do this, then automatically you have earned this. 
So it doesn't focus on the necessity of heart transformation or sin. It focuses on external acts that we are to do. Um, again, more of the extreme views of this, more of what we would call cults or Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, Seventh-day Adventist, Islam, are all examples of a moralistic type gospel. This view says good works will lead to salvation versus what God's word says, that good works will flow from our salvation. And this is the counterfeit that we're going to look at today. And so I know that most likely you've heard of all of those, probably with different names. You've been exposed to them when you're talking to people. They've said things that maybe have um, mimicked that. Um, there's many Christians that buy into a form of these, and the moralistic gospel is where we're going to look at today. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. And one thing that we do here is we stand for the reading of the Word because we believe God's Word is like no other. And so we do that in honor of God. So I ask you to stand as we read verses 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now as, as we know that you are a holy, sovereign, just, loving, gracious God. You have given us your word that we would know you, that we would know your character, that we would know how you act, that we would know um, eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Son, that we would know that it is by faith we are by, that we are saved, through your grace, that it is not by works we are saved. Father, we see that in your word, the early churches were plagued by counterfeit gospels through false teachers, and we know that we are today. So, Father, I pray as we look at your letter here in the book of Titus that we would better understand you, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be prepared to stand against false gospels, that we would be able to see them for what they are, that we would not fall prey to them. I pray that as we look today and understand how you have ordained the functioning of your church through roles of authority and roles of submission, that we would better understand how you have ordained the church, that we would be guarded against these false teachings. And God, ultimately, I pray that as we worship you through your word, we would increase in our love, our affection, and our faith towards you through Jesus Christ by the power of your spirit. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So the, name, the, the title of the series is, is Who is a Church Member? And we're looking at what it means to 
to be a church member, and remember we're calling church member and believer synonymous because nowhere in the New Testament do we have believers who live apart from a local church. So again, what does life look like for a church member? And last week, we saw that Paul had left Titus, one of his protégés, in Crete to serve, uh, to appoint elders within the churches. We defined elder as a man of God whose life reflects the character of God as he stewards the house of God. And we saw that he has two primary roles as he stewards the house of God. Number one, and we see this in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So number one, an elder is to be able to give teaching in sound doctrine. Number two, as we continue on in verse 9, we see, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the second role that the elder is to have is to rebuke false teachers, that he would correct false teachings and, and protect the church. And so as we do this, we're going to look at who are these false teachers that are especially um, being revealed here in the book of Titus. So the identity of the false teachers in verse 10 we begin to see the character of who these false teachers are. And we come across the first word, insubordinate, which means they're rebellious. They not only dislike authority, but they seek to undermine authority. They have no problem undermining the elders within a church. They have no problem helping others undermine the authority of the elders within the church. They also have empty words, or they're empty talkers, meaning their words have no real substance. They are always a dilution of the truth. So the way I picture this is, it's like candy. Candy looks good. Candy tastes good. Candy has absolutely no nutritional value to it. And that's the empty talkers that are coming. It looks good. It sounds good. Kind of makes you feel good a little bit, but it has absolutely no saving worth to it at all. They're also known as deceivers. They distort the truth with the hopes of convincing others to follow them. So in a sense, they're like the big bad wolf in the, little, uh, in the nursery rhyme, Little Red Riding Hood. They disguise themselves and their words that they will appear attractive. Therefore, they may lure others into danger. In verse 16, Paul will continue to describe who these false teachers are. And he says that they will profess to know God, but deny him by their works. So don't miss this. A false teacher will always be exposed, be revealed by his works. This is why, as a church, let us never be quick to appoint someone an elder until we know who they are, their character, their family life, the way they view God's word. Let us never be quick to follow someone. Someone comes into the church and says, hey, i got a slick message. Some of us can be quickly attracted to that. The presentation is nice. We like the wrapping of what he says. But let us not be quick to follow these people. I'm not saying let's not follow them, but let us not be quick until we know who they are. Their character will be revealed through their life. So let us always make sure that the character and the words in which they say will align with the word of God. And as we continue on in verse 16, Paul says they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They have no place in the church. They have no place within the church. They're unfit for any good work. Ultimately, what Paul is doing here, if you remember last week, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and read verses 5 through 9. 
But in those verses, Paul describes the character of an elder. And so in these verses, he's describing who a false teacher is. So he's contrasting that of an elder versus that of a false teacher. And an elder is to represent or is to reflect the character of God, which we said all believers are to grow in the faith, that we are all to represent or to reflect the character of God. And so if that is what an elder does, who is it that a false teacher represents or reflects? Well, Satan. A false teacher reflects Satan. Remember, Satan is the accuser, the deceiver, the father of all lies. In the book of 2 Corinthians, we are told in chapter 11 that Satan will disguise himself as an angel of light. And he disguises his followers as servants of righteousness. Now just be clued in here. False teachers don't wear name tags. False teacher. So helpful if they did that. Like wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, I'm not following that guy. Oh, well you're coming. We'll direct you to over here. No. They look good. Their messages are slick. And the, the false teachers that are the most convincing will use this. And we'll see that later on, because that's exactly what's happening in Crete. So what is, what is their message? What is the message of these people who reflect nothing of Christ? Well, one thing we're going to see is that their message and the message of every counterfeit gospel ultimately will undermine Jesus Christ, why he died on the cross, and why he rose from the grave. Every false gospel will attack the cross. It will attack many of the things, the character of God and all the and, and, and eternal life and why he created and so much more. But ultimately, they all will attack the cross. The therapeutic gospel says Jesus came to make us a little better. He didn't die to transform us. He died to improve us, to help us. The judgmentless gospel says Jesus didn't actually need to come. He didn't need to come because he's, God's not going to judge us anyway. The moralistic gospel uh, in, in some senses, we'll say Jesus didn't need to come either because we are the ones who decide what is right, what is wrong. We are the ones who make ourselves worthy to be saved. Or they may say Jesus was a good example and he gave us a boost in morality, showing us you know, a, a good way to live. They would almost say that Jesus, um, it, the moralistic gospel would kind of say, um, Jesus, in a sense, helps us put together a giant jigsaw puzzle. Imagine a a giant jigsaw puzzle, a thousand pieces, small pieces, it's hard, and Jesus is sitting there helping us, puts a lot of it together to himself, maybe puts the framework himself, helps us with those really troubled areas, and and we, we sometimes help him, he helps us, but when it comes to putting the last few pieces together so that the picture comes to a full revelation, we do that. That's the moralistic gospel. Jesus might help us a little bit, might do a little bit himself, But the ultimate way the picture will be formed, the ultimate way salvation comes about is through our work. The moralistic gospel minimizes the work of Jesus and maximizes our work. Anytime you hear the cross being diminished through someone else's teaching, the compromising of the cross, be very weary at that moment. Be very weary. At the end of verse 10, We're told that these false teachers are of the circumcision party, meaning they are Jews. And in verse 13, we see their teaching, devotion to Jewish myths. And ultimately, in verse 13, we say, oh, I'm sorry. um, 
verse 14, the Jewish myths, and they are teaching commands of people who turn away from the truth. So the commands that they're teaching, the teachings that they're giving, do not originate from God, but they originate from man, from men who have rejected the faith, men who have turned away from the truth. So the words that they teach are not from God, but they are man-made. So what does this look like? Well, here in Crete, um, the Jews would come, and what we see is that throughout the New Testament, uh, we have these Judaizers who are coming and attacking the churches with false gospels. And so they would come to, let's say, a church like this. They would walk in, and they would sit. They'd be, they'd be dressed really nice. They might have a tie. I normally don't wear a tie. If you're normally here, you know that. But today, just it seemed like one of those days. You know, some days it's like jeans and, and maybe a polo button up. And I was like, ah. I have these. I need to dust them off every once in a while. So, um, so they'd come. They'd sit nice. It'd probably be very welcoming. They'd definitely drink our coffee because that's what good Washingtonians do. I would come. They would sit. They would praise God with us. They'd lift up their hands potentially, or or like this because they're religious. And some people say this is irreligious if you lift your hands too hard. Um, some of you know that if you've been more a part of fundamental areas. Um, but they would be here, and then as, as there's teaching, they would say, wow, this, this is good. Wow, you, you guys are doing some really good things. But I've noticed that you haven't really talked about circumcision a lot lately. So let me turn to something. In Genesis 17, what we see in the very beginning, when, when God sets aside Abraham and, and begins calling a people for himself, we see circumcision is really the sign, the physical sign that you are part of the family of God. Let me walk you through the Old Testament and see how often that Israel was in trouble for not practicing circumcision in these things. So really, guys, what, what you're teaching is good. I, I love that you're teaching this Jesus and, and morality. And, and even this faith thing's not bad. But if you really, truly want to be saved, I mean, from God's word, we see circumcision. And have you not seen what the Bible says on the Sabbath? Why, we, we can't do all this work that you guys... Let me walk through the Old Testament from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 where we see that the Sabbath is beginning to be talked about by God and how Israel, God's people, are always called to keep the Sabbath. So from God's Word, let me show you that, that together we could observe the Sabbath as God really has called us to, that we would be His people. It would be convincing. It's packaged well, and you're going, wow... I didn't really see that. Oh, this is, this is interesting. Maybe we're really not a part of God's people. So that's, that's how it, it could begin to look. And we read about this in the book of Galatians. In Galatians, um, it, this message is so persuasive that Paul says Peter, one of the apostles, began to fall prey to this message. So let me just caution us. Let us never think that you or I, any of us, are so holy that we cannot fall prey to a false gospel. The apostle Peter, the one who walked with Jesus, saw Jesus die, raise, put his fingers in the hands of Jesus, touched the side where the spear went in, heard the teachings of Jesus, was an apostle, helped lay the foundation of the church, and he fell into it. So let us not think that we are immune to these things. This is a very real threat. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, this is what Paul says. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. So here, Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia saying, I'm surprised that so many of you, it's not one, it's not two, 
It's not three people. There's many people who are falling prey to this teaching. Notice Paul says it's a different gospel. It's not Jesus Christ by grace through faith we are saved. It's by works we are saved. And so any different gospel, any false gospel cannot save you. It has no worth to be able to save us. In Colossians chapter 2, again, Paul is talking about this. And when you read the New Testament, just look. Almost every single letter, except I think Philemon, almost every letter addresses the issue of false teachers plaguing the church. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, Paul again is writing about these Judaizers who are coming, and this is what he says about their teaching. He says, their teaching has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Self-made religion. And asceticism and severity to the body, circumcision. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So these false teachers are saying, if you really want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow these feasts. You need to obey the Sabbath laws. And Paul says, you can do those things, but they're of absolutely no value to you. They will not change who you are of your sinful nature. They have no way of stopping the indulgences of the flesh. A moralistic gospel has no power to save. And so what we have here, I think these are the first blanks, false teachers promise that through works salvation can be obtained that's their message again we're looking primarily at the moralistic gospel but they are praying they are saying through works you can obtain salvation this message may sound like this today don't lie don't steal don't curse don't get a tattoo don't get drunk don't hurt people etc If you don't do any of those things, you're going to be a good person worthy of eternal life. And because we're worthy of eternal life, what does that mean? Well, it means God is obligated to save us, which means salvation is not by grace through Jesus Christ. It's because we've earned it. Do you see how it distorts the cross? It distorts the entire reason why Jesus has come. Now we are the ones who save ourselves. So the problem with the moralistic gospel is it fails to recognize mankind's very nature is sinful and it is something we cannot change in our own power. This is the bad news of the gospel or of the Bible is that we are born as sinful people. We are not sinners because we sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We are sinful and therefore we sin. Do you see the difference? It's not because I first told a lie at some point in my life and then I became a sinner. I am a sinner and therefore I lied. Our identity when we are born into this world is sinful. That's because Adam and Eve sinned in the very beginning and their sinful nature has been passed down through every single person except Jesus Christ. That every one of us is born sinful. Therefore, nothing we do can save us. And that's what we see as we go into verse 15. Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. But who's pure? Well, none of us are pure. The defiled, but to be but defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This is who we are as we come into this earth. We are not pure. Everything we do is impure because we are not pure. We are sinful. 
And that's why Christ came. Because we cannot save ourselves. Because there's no amount of good deeds that we can do that will ever outweigh the bad things that we have done that will then justify God saving us based upon our own merit. Christ came, not, Christ came to die on a cross not to make us a little better, not to boost our morality, not to offer just one more way to get to eternal life, but he, gave, but he came that whoever believes in him, has faith in him, would be forgiven and become a new creation. This is where the transformation that takes place. The good news of the gospel is that we are sinful, with no means of being saved, but Christ came to save us, to transform us, that we would be made new. He came to pay the price that we could not pay, the price for our sins. So moralistic gospel is a lie. It has no power to save. So be very weary of when we begin to hear people say, this is what makes us a good person. Now this does not mean that all the commands of Scripture are wrong. When it gives us commands on pursuing a holy life, when it commands us not to lie, not to steal, to love one another, those are good things, but those flow from a heart that has been made new in Jesus Christ. Those don't lead to a new heart in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? They don't lead toward salvation. They flow out of salvation. And therefore, we are to do them because we've been made new. And now, as we saw last week with the looking at elders, The Christian, the character of the believer, is to reflect that of Christ. So now, these these false teachers have come in to Crete. They're teaching circumcision, probably teaching the Sabbath, probably teaching certain feasts and fasts that the church is to be able to hold. So what's the result of their teaching? Verse 11, we're told whole families are being upset. Whole families, that probably refers to house churches. 10 to 30 people. Remember, he's writing to all the Cretan churches. We have different churches here. They're probably meeting in houses, 10 to 30 people, and they're confused. There's, there's, There's problems coming about. Some people are saying, well, it's faith in Jesus that saves us by his grace. Others are saying, faith in Jesus is good, but it means nothing without circumcision. So now we have disunity. We have division. And that's our first thing. False teachers bring about division within the church. doesn't matter what the counterfeit gospel is. They will always bring about division within the church. Remember, they're insubordinate. They have no desire to, to, to remain under the authority of the elders who are trying to uphold the word of God. And automatically, when, when there's division... And we have people beginning to buy into the lies of the false teachers. We have this group pitted against this group. We have these who are buying into lies pitted against those who are trying to uphold to the truth. Unity is torn apart. Division begins to run rampant. We have gossip, slander. So many ways that that happens now today within the church. And the problem with with false gospels, when they come in and the division begins to happen, you and I, we become narrowly focused on that division. And we think it's between me and this person, or this group and that person. And we become very um, focused on defending and attacking. And we're no longer really thinking about how does our character reflect that of Christ. And therefore, there are many people who are being exposed or on the outside looking in on this, such as our children, 
when our children are beginning to see what they know or what they believe to be as godly people, whatever camp they're in, yelling at each other, attacking each other, slandering one another, physically, emotionally, verbally abusing one another. And then we wonder why our children have such a distorted view of the church and the gospel and they walk away at later years. It doesn't just affect the primary people within the division, but it affects everyone within the church. And never think our children don't see. Never think our children don't see. But it not only affects everyone within the church, but it affects those outside the church. False teachers taint the testimony of the church within its community. Because of the division that occurs within the church, the unbelieving community who is looking inward as the church should always desire the community to do, to be able to look at them, and we should always expect that they are doing that. And as the unbelieving community looks at the church and they see the division begins to occur, they're going, wow, this doesn't seem to function any differently, and maybe it functions worse than a city council meeting, a PTA meeting, I don't know, I was trying to think of other public meetings. I was like drawing blanks. I was like, those are the only two. I was like, man, what else do we do? There's PTA. Maybe those are kind of things that are around my my world at this moment. Um, But no longer is the church attracting people to the gospel, but they're actually validating the reasons the people have outside the church why they don't want to be in the church. Let us be very careful about false teachers coming in because the division occurs does not only hurt us which will carry on for decades of hurt within the church but it will very well taint the testimony and justify why people have no desire to be within the church next one false teachers deceive people thus endangering their souls and this is the deadliest result this is what all the other reasons ultimately lead to False teachers deceive people, thus endangering their souls. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians. When you turn from the true gospel, you're turning to a, a different gospel, a false gospel. There's not a middle ground. There's not, oh, well, you turn from that gospel. And as you're thinking about what gospel you're trying to do, you remain in this wonderful neutral area that if Christ was to come back at this moment, you'd be okay because you're neutral. There is no neutral area. By turning from the true gospel, you're buying into a false gospel. And people are believing the lies of these teachers, thus thinking they have hope when they really don't. It's kind of like this. Imagine you're in the water, in the middle of the ocean, and you're drowning. And you know you're going to sink. You know you're going to die. You have no hope. And all of a sudden, this boat pulls up. And this guy stands out. And he says, do you need help? Yes, I do. Would you like my life preserver? Yes, I would love your life preserver. Throw me your life preserver. Well, okay, this life preserver will definitely save you. Great, throw it. You throw your hands up. He throws the life preserver. It completely goes right around you, just right through the arms. Perfect throw. Only after it has been snugly fit around you do you realize it is a life preserver made of concrete. And now you will slowly begin to sink into utter despair. And that's what happens with false teaching. Because we're saying, yes, we need help. Yes, we know this world does not operate the way we think it should. There has to be an answer, whether it's God or we want to believe something else. I need some type of gospel to help me. And so they'll buy into the false gospel. 
thus thinking they have hope, but really it's false hope that only drags them down further and further into despair. False teaching is a very real danger. Yes, it's okay to be concerned with nuclear threat, chemical warfare, terrorists. But the thing ultimately that everyone needs in this world is the one true gospel. The counterfeit gospels are one of the greatest, deadliest dangers that we're facing today. Because there's only two places to be in. You're either believing the true gospel or you're buying into a false gospel. Those are only two options. There are no other options presented in God's Word. There are no neutral areas. So how is the church to respond? This is the point of why Paul is writing. So, so what do we do? Well, Paul, well, Titus, I'm leaving you here in Crete so you continue to raise up godly men who will teach sound doctrine, teach the gospel, and that they will refute these people who are there and will continue to emerge trying to teach a false gospel. Remember, um, in, the, in, in Acts chapter 12, or chapter 20, this was the quote we read earlier from Paul. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. It doesn't say might. It doesn't say maybe. Not sparing the flock. So they're coming to hurt, to kill, to deceive. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So number one, what is to be the response the false teachers. Well, elders are called to be alert and aware of their flock. Elders are called to be alert and aware of the flock. So I say this to all our elders who are here and to all the men who I desire to one day be elders, and to all of us that we would know and be alert within this church. Wolves are coming. They are they might be here. There is someone, there could very well, based upon what we know, the truth of Scripture, someone could be here as a wolf today. And if they're not, we know that they will try to come. Elders are not to be lazy, but they are to be aware of their sheep, attentive of the sheep. Elders are to be intentionally engaged with knowing the people within the flock, to growing together with them, encouraging them, praying with them, helping them in their faith. The position of elder does not center around meetings. While meetings are great, they are necessary, but they center around the people. They center around the people. They must know the sheep and be alert to what is happening around the sheep. Elders have to do that. They are people-oriented people because they are, they are um, saturated within the gospel. Elders are called to be alert and aware of the flock. Number two, elders are called to muzzle false teachers. To muzzle. In verse 11, we see elders are called to silence false teachers. The word is muzzle. When a wolf emerges in the sheep pen, the elder is not to run away, but he runs towards the wolf. And he muzzles him. He doesn't allow him to teach. He doesn't say, well... That's some bad teaching going on. Well, maybe we'll just see what happens. 
Let's see, what, you know, how bad can he get? You know, let's see how many people he can really get to follow him. How many people can he kill in the process? We run towards the wolf. This is why we must be so careful in whom we appoint as elders because we want to make sure our elders are grounded in the Word of God and we want to make sure our elders are not cowards. When the wolf comes, they run towards the wolf. We don't run away from the wolf. I was talking to my wife earlier this week. We were talking about confrontations and all this wonderful stuff. Um, I don't like confrontation. I really don't. But I will confront. My wife, she's reading this definition of what it is to, to exhort people. And she's like, really, honey, this is really you. And it talks about how uh, when we exhort, it's not that we are looking to confront, to rebuke, but we will humbly, hopefully humbly, and willingly enter into confrontation when that time is needed. That's what we want. I, I hate confrontation, but we desperately need it. So we, might, we cannot run from it. We, so we, let's be careful who we appoint, and let's be very careful on whom we allow to teach within the church. And yes, I hope you heard the word allow. Yeah, not everyone should just be able to teach. No one should assume a position of teaching within the church without first gaining approval by the elders. No one. And this is not some, well, hierarchy, authority, well, we just want it our way. No, you should want this too. You should desire this. Because we want to make sure that every teacher that comes in is grounded in the Word, has been asked questions, has gone through scrutiny, that we've talked to, that we understand where we agree, and potentially where there might be areas that we differ on. And are those areas okay that he can still teach, or is it not okay that he can teach? And so, as the church, I want to encourage you, anyone that desires to teach, direct them toward the elders. And elders, let us not think that the responsibility lies purely on the flock, that they will direct people to us, but let us be aware of anyone who is trying to teach because a wolf will not ask permission because they're insubordinate. That's who they are. They don't care if they teach with your um, affirmation or not. Now think about it this way. because The the, the imagery that we have in the Bible is, is shepherds and his flock. So imagine you have this sheep all within the sheep pen, and, and a wolf in sheep's clothing enters or comes to the outside, and he says, let me in. I've been looking for a good flock. Oh, I'd love to come in here with you. Oh, look, we, we all have the same likes and dislikes, and, and some of you guys are going, he kind of looks like Joe. I haven't seen Joe for a while. He probably is wearing Joe. He's probably wearing the sheep's clothing. And so, he said, well, he looks really familiar. He looks really nice. He sounds just like us. Let's, let's let him in. And then one of the sheep goes, well, we'd love to let you in. Let me go get the shepherd real quick. And he goes, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that. Just, you can go ahead and raise that latch. It'll be okay. I'll just come on in with you. And you, and you go, well, no, no, it's, it's quite okay. We, we don't mind. We, we like the shepherd to open the door. So you get him, and as soon as he comes, he's going, huh, this, wolf looks a little, or this sheep looks a little different. His paws look a little different. Sounds a little different. 
Look, it's not that elders are greater than other believers, but with elders, we are asking them and expecting that they're spending a greater amount of time within God's Word, because we all have busy schedules. We all desire to spend time in God's Word, and hopefully we all are, but we're asking that our elders are spending greater amounts of time, that they have Um, that they truly are saturating themselves in the gospel. So when something is raised up that does not align with God's word, we are very aware of that. Number three, elders are called to rebuke false teachers. In verse 13, Paul says, rebuke them sharply. Why? Well, in verse 12, notice the word verse, therefore. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So this is the character of Cretans. But also, then it says in verse 13, this testimony is true. Paul saying, it's true. That is who they are. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. So this quote that we have in verse 12 is not only a description of all the Cretans, but especially that of the false teachers, and therefore rebuke them sharply. When someone begins to teach a false doctrine, we rebuke them. We don't walk up to them. We don't walk up to the wolf with a nice little collar and a leash, scratching behind the ears. Hey, let me just put this around you. Let me lead you gently outside the sheep pen. No. Shepherds carry a staff so that we would help the sheep pull them out of hurtful places and to beat the wolf. That's why we carry the staff to help sheep and beat the wolf. Now, before we all gain our, our distorted view of what that looks like, let's go to the next point quite quickly, because this one helps. The elder's hope is the salvation of the false teacher. Look at verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Okay, why do you want me to rebuke them sharply? I mean, I understand that they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. What else are you saying? Well, the purpose of the rebuking sharply is that they may be sound in their faith. So the elders' hope is the salvation of the false teacher. That's the hope. So the elder will muzzle and sharply rebuke the wolf so that by the grace of Jesus, he might become a sheep. The goal of the elder is that the false teacher would see his error in his teaching, repent, and believe in Jesus. So elders, and all those who one day desire to be elders, and even as we confront people, let us always do so with love, wisdom, humility, grace, and firmness. But let us not sacrifice grace, love, wisdom, and humility with only firmness. We must have both. We're doing so that they would see the error in their way. For even as we rebuke, we are called to demonstrate the character of Christ so that the church who is watching, the unbelieving community that is watching, would see how we properly respond to false teaching and all times reflect the character of Christ. So what Paul has done here. He gives a picture that the elders are to form a defensive wall around the church. Instructing, but also guarding, because wolves will try to enter in. Wolves will try to enter in. And so I know most of us here are not elders, and some of you are going, okay, I'm tracking, 
Why do we really need to know this? Isn't this just like, you know, elder school 101? Like as soon as someone wants to be an elder, we walk them through this. Um, yes, but no. Like elders need to know this, definitely. But we as a church need to know this. Let me just give a few reasons. I kind of gave reasons at the end of last week um, how to respond to this teaching of elders. And so this week, again, why do we need to know it? Uh, these aren't in your bulletin, but I think these um, are pertinent. Number one, for the glory of God. It's about God's glory that we understand this. The position and role of elder is not man-made, but God-made, and not man-ordained, but God-ordained. So by us knowing the God, how God has ordained the roles of authority and submission within the church helps us know how we are to function, thus glorify God as we live together. And remember last week, we said there are authority and submission being demonstrated within the Trinity. So as we live that out as a church, we're better understanding the character of God and reflecting the character of God, not only to those within the church, but also to those outside the church. Number two, why do we need to know this? For your joy and the joy of the elders. For your joy and the joy of the elders. Remember last week we read Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Hopefully now we know. We begin to see, well, how do they do that? Oh, well, they guard us against false teaching that a wolf wouldn't come in and lead us astray. So that's how they're guarding, watching over the souls. So as those who will have to give an account, so elders have to give an account to God on how they do this. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning. I like that. Um, For that would be of no advantage to you. So what we have here is that the church is being called to obey and submit so that the elders will serve with joy. But let us remember that as the elders are serving with joy, they are doing so that they would serve your joy in Christ. So as you submit to the elders, it is for your joy, for as they perform their duties that they've been given by God, that they would help to increase your joy. Now, neither one is dependent upon the other, necessarily. So the elders don't only say, well, I'll only serve them with joy when they help me have joy. And uh, you're not to only say, well, I'll only serve them with joy when they're helping to increase my joy. Not necessarily dependent. But we are to serve one another with joy and helping increase our joy. Number three, for your prayers. The next verse in Hebrews, chapter 13, is verse 18. It says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorable in all things. So pray that the elders have wisdom that we would act honorably. Pray that we hold to the trustworthy word. Pray that we would be alert Pray that we would serve you and the church well. Pray that we would be alert to false teaching. Pray that we as a church would be careful in whom we appoint as elders. Pray that we, the elders, would demonstrate the character of God as we steward the house of God. Pray that we as a church would reflect the character of God and how we submit to the elders and how we live with one another. So it's good for us to know so that we might live for the glory of God that we might increase one another's joy, and that we might pray for one another, being dependent upon God, that he ultimately, as our ultimate shepherd, would protect us from false gospels, that we would know him even more. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that you have given it to us, that we would understand you and the gospel that you have given us. I pray that we all desire to grow in understanding and knowledge of the word, that we would cling to your word, that we would not be led astray by false gospels. And Father, I pray that as wolves, we'll try to enter. Help us to be alert. Help us as elders to be alert. Help the church to be alert. Help us to work together. God, we pray for the protection that we would not, for your protection, that disunity would not grow here, but that we would fight for the unity that we have in you. That we would work to serve, to increase one another's joy in you. That we would help model what it is to live as a believer within the body of Christ to our children to those who are new to the faith, to the unbelieving community around us, that we would continually reflect your character to them. Father, I pray that we today would better understand there are real threats to the church. And you have placed elders as a means of defending against those, but God, ultimately, you are our hope. It is you we place our confidence in. It is you we ask for strength and guidance from. So God, I pray that here at Timberline, we continually cling to you, cling to your word, that your spirit would strengthen us, that together we would stand, holding firm to your gospel, empowered by your spirit, praising Jesus Christ to the glory of you, the Father. In your name, Jesus, amen.